read the opening verses uh, of Romans chapter 1 together. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 uh, this evening. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a sense uh, when we begin this incredible uh, letter, uh, which is the letter to the Romans, that we need to surround it almost in our imagination with uh, some of the, the, the signs that we're familiar with which uh, indicate something uh, explosive or dangerous ahead. A danger sign. Caution. Explosive material. Because we are coming to material tonight in this letter which has had an explosive impact on people down through the years. 1,600 years ago, uh, we were thinking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was an Algerian philosopher who was searching for the truth and who found himself travelling around the Mediterranean world on the one hand, searching for the truth, and on the other hand, living an immoral life. Augustine was in the garden of a friend uh, in Milan when he heard a childlike voice saying, Tole legge, tole legge, take and read, take and read. He couldn't remember hearing a children's song with these words in it before. He took it as that this was a word from God. There was a Bible uh, near at hand. He opened it at random. He read from Romans 13, 13 to 14, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the evil nature. Augustine felt that light had entered his soul. It dispelled the gloom. Uh, he became a Christian. He was converted. He became one of the greatest uh, influences on the Christian church uh, since Paul himself. 600 years ago, a pious monk by the name of Martin Luther could find no rest for his soul, despite the fact that he was going through all the things that the, the Catholic church prescribed uh, for people like him. He went in pilgrimage, he did penance, he did all of the rites that were supposed to purify him. He could find no rest. In desperation, he turned to study this book. 
Uh, he came to verse 17, the verse that says the righteous will live by faith. He understood at last what it was uh, to receive righteousness that came from the outside, righteousness that wasn't Aaron wasn't his own. He wrote, I felt born again like a new man. In very truth, this language of St. Paul was to me the true gate of paradise. On the 24th of May, 1738, a man called John Wesley, again, living in a religious uh, atmosphere, but profoundly uh, ill at ease, looking for peace, for his soul, came to a Moravian meeting in uh, Aldersgate Street in London, where he wrote, one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley went on to be a key figure in that movement of God we call the Great Awakening in the 18th century that probably, under God, preserved uh, England from the, the bloodletting of the French Revolution. 19th century Geneva, a Scottish uh, preacher, Robert Haldane, finds that the spiritual atmosphere of the city uh, very, very uh, low. He begins a Bible study on this book, the letter to the Romans, uh, in his hotel bedroom, invites uh, some other uh, notable figures. Uh, there is a revival in that little company. Uh, the men who gathered with Haldane go on uh, to influence the church, the Protestant church, throughout Europe. God has been pleased to use this epistle to the Romans down through the years. I think it's significant in the recovery uh, of expository preaching in Scotland, in the Church of Scotland, uh, in the 20th century. Many of those who were involved in that spent a great deal of time expounding the letter of Paul to the Romans. This is a powerful letter. It's powerful because it is the fullest exposition of the Christian message in the New Testament. Uh, Paul is writing to a church which at this point he had never visited. And he is uh, at pains to set out his credentials and to lay on the table, as it were, his Christian manifesto. Yet there are pastoral concerns in the 13th and 14th chapter, but they're not so prominent. They don't shape the letter so much as uh, these do in other cases. This is the fullest exposition of the Christian message that we have in the New Testament. The opening greeting makes clear where the power resides. It's in a message which comes with the full authority of God himself. And Paul adapts the format of a traditional first century letter in order to front load this fact because normally what you would have in a letter and what you see in the other epistles is the format uh, Paul uh, to so-and-so greetings it's a bit different from our letters because we write uh, dear John uh, blah 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 warm regards Ivor MacDonald 
they did it differently then. You have the, the, uh, the person writing the letter, then uh, the recipient, and then a message of greetings. But here, there is this expanded greeting, sandwiched between the two traditional parts, a foretaste of what's to come. And here we have a gospel which challenges us to find purpose in the service of God. Polls tell us that uh, for the first time in Scotland, more than half of the population self-identify as non-religious. Many of the people uh, who, in this accelerating trend, have, have come to do that, have really been switched off by enfeebled Christendom. They've been switched off by uh, a church that stands for very little, that seems desperate to be liked, and so it's understandable that people would turn away from that. But when people turn away from religion, they find that what they've turned to is actually another religion, the religion of no religion, and it is far from satisfying. It turns out to be a road to futility. If there's no God, then the new atheist may sense, uh, have a sense of being liberated because there's no one to whom he or she is now accountable. But this sense of freedom soon turns sour because if we have no one to whom we're accountable, then what we do with this new freedom is meaningless. And if what we do is meaningless, then we ourselves are meaningless. There's no purpose, there's no significance to our lives. And Paul is in a similar situation uh, in the first century because he's living in a day when there were many gods. There was no absolute <coughs> truth. And into this atmosphere, Paul is, as it were, lobbing the grenade of the gospel. And it's exploding in the lives of people down through the centuries. So we're going to look together in these first seven verses at Paul's purpose, which was a heavenly appointment. We're going to look at the source of purpose, a transforming message. And thirdly, the purpose of those Roman Christians, a purpose they found in living out a new identity. If you go into your, uh, your cupboard, your larder in the, the kitchen at home and uh, look out some of your favourite jams or preserves or, or any other uh, well-known food, very many of them will have a, a little crown and it will say underneath the crown, by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen, purveyors of fine preserves or something like that. And here uh, is a firm uh, that has provided something of quality and royalty have seen fit to purchase this, to purchase it regularly and have seen fit to endorse it to give it their seal of approval. Paul has a royal endorsement, which is far higher than that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. These are his credentials. This is his appointment. And isn't it interesting that the first thing that Paul has to say about himself is that he's a servant of God. Actually, he doesn't really say that at all because it's far, it's far more radical than that. Uh, the Greek word is doulos, which means a slave. He's a bond slave. 
of God. Now, we know, don't we, that that's, that word in itself uh, can't fully describe our relationship with God. And Paul's not saying my, entire, my relationship with God can be described as a slavish relationship. Uh, Paul, of all people, wouldn't say that. He's going to tell us uh, in this very epistle what it is to be brought into a family. Uh, to know God as Abba, Father, to have the Lord Jesus Christ as his elder brother. But what he's saying here is that he has been brought into a relationship of commitment, absolute commitment to the living God. He is a bond slave. I am Paul and I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I am absolutely, completely uh, committed to the service of of Jesus Christ. It isn't up for negotiation. He has absolute authority over me. Immediately that note of authority is struck. A slave of Christ. Also he says an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. He a sent one. You didn't volunteer to be an apostle. You didn't see an advert that says apostles wanted apply if interested. You were called to be an apostle. Apostle is literally a sent one. Uh, you have the twelve that were with Jesus, and you have others along with them. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, regarded as an apostle. Paul himself, an apostle out of time. An apostle is one who would be a witness to the resurrection, a witness to the, the, the raised Jesus. And someone, as Paul says, who did the works that accompany an apostle, who performed miracles and as an apostle uh, Paul with the rest had a foundational role in the building of the church so this is an unrepeatable generation of church leaders we can't have by definition apostles today but Paul is numbered amongst that group of people called on as key witnesses to lay the foundation of the church Paul of course had been going in the opposite direction uh, he had been going to, to crush the church. Uh, he had been on his way to Damascus uh, with letters uh, to haul the Christians there uh, to account. And the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus and brought him under subjection, had him spread-eagled on the desert floor until Paul cried out, Lord, Lord. Stopped in his tracks, commissioned to proclaim the message he had tried to stamp out. And that's, that calling is something that gripped Paul, that uh, had a, a, gave a flavour to every aspect of his life. He describes it as being set apart for the gospel. Set apart. Dedicated. Totally to this great task. This wasn't something that Paul was taking up in a kind of whimsical way. This isn't something that Paul was at liberty to set aside. It's not a hobby that he could take on and put down. He was set apart for the proclamation and the promotion of the truth of God. So, what Paul is telling us in Romans uh, comes not with uh, Paul the man's authority, but comes with the authority of one who has the authority of God. He speaks as one commissioned. 
if you received a letter from uh, the royal household instructing you to travel immediately to London and appear before the Queen, then uh, you wouldn't just think, well, will I obey this or won't I be able to go or, or won't? Uh, you would be under an obligation to respond in a satisfactory way. Paul is making clear at the outset that what he's saying comes with God's authority. No one is entitled to say of the epistles of Paul, well, that was Paul's opinion. But there are other ways of looking at it. Paul's entitled to his opinion. Other people see it differently. Paul's telling us that's not an option because he is one under authority. We may ignore what he's saying, but we will face the consequences because we are ignoring the very word of God. So Paul uh, comes as someone who is self-consciously someone with a purpose. He has been commissioned, set apart uh, for the gospel. And the source of this purpose is the message itself. It's a transforming message. Paul condenses a huge amount of information. It's very, these verses are so dense, aren't they? You feel that as, as we read them. They're packed with information. He says, first of all, that what he has been set apart uh, for is good news. Isn't that great? That's where we start with, with this message. It's gospel, which is good news. Gospel uh, derives itself from uh, the, uh, the Evangelion. is something which was associated with the proclamation of a message which an emperor might command to be made. There's a royal proclamation. And this royal proclamation, which has come from our king, concerns good news. The Christian message is one of good news. That's something that we must never forget, never lose sight of. It is always good news to proclaim Jesus Christ. Other religions are not good news in that sense. Islam preaches a fatalism, a fanaticism, and brings bondage rather than freedom. Buddhism is a joyless religion presided over by grim-faced monks. Western materialism is also a religion, and it's pretty joyless. It fills life with things and empties life of meaning. The message that we have, the heart of this letter, assumes the bleakness of our world and bursts into that bleakness with a message of divine love. Reconciliation with God. Acceptance into the family. Hope for the future. Peace with God. This is good news like none other. The second thing, having said it's good news, Paul says it's the good news of God. The gospel of God. Now, when you heard that read, did that strike you as, as quite significant? It's, it's a fairly unusual expression. Paul later on calls, speaks of the gospel of his son. Uh, the gospel of God is both an unusual and a weighty expression. Uh, it's saying, this is a message which 
doesn't originate in the, the, the thoughts and speculations of man. This is a message which has its origins in God himself. It originates in God. It's shaped in the mind of God. It comes with the truth and the wisdom of God. And that's such a relief, isn't it? That we are here tonight to hear the gospel of God. His message. Who wants to know what I think about politics or psychology or whatever? That's of no interest. It's not going to save anybody. But what we need is a word from God. And it's a vital message. It addresses the deep needs of our lives. It's not some superficial sticking plaster that will simply help us to get through our troubles for a little while. You know, there are people in the world today, up and down the country, and their lives are profoundly sad. People who cry themselves to sleep every night with heavy sobs. And there are those who try to help them, and they're helping them with superficial remedies that will try to divert their minds, to take them, their minds off it, to make them laugh a little. And what they need is something which addresses the sickness and unease of their soul. Something that will bring them peace with God. That will give them confidence that they can face the future. That things are really alright between themselves and their maker. That they have a purpose. This is the gospel of God. And it addresses mankind in his deep need. And therefore it's unique. It's not an option. It's not, it's not something that we can pick up and run with because it's on the, the buffet of options. It's uniquely true. It's true truth. And so it couldn't, the stakes couldn't be higher as to how we respond to the gospel of God. It's a matter of heaven or hell. Good news, this gospel of God. And Paul says that it's attested by the Old Testament prophets. Paul is always at pains to show uh, people, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, that what he is saying, although it comes with newness, it's not, it's not really new in the sense it's not uh, contradicting what the Old Testament said. It's simply fulfilling what the Old Testament promised. What we have here in Romans comes with all of the authority of the Old Testament prophets. All that they had said was concerning Jesus. And we were thinking that this morning. We were thinking about it with the children because they are they're wise enough to take that in. That the, the very furniture in the tabernacle is all speaking about Jesus. It's all about Jesus from first to last. The sending of a redeemer who would bear punishment as a substitute, who would bridge the gulf between a holy God and sinful man. Now revealed because he has come to save us. It's attested by the apostles. It's attested by the Old Testament prophets. And it centers on the Son of God. It centers on the Son of God. It's regarding his Son. The Son of God who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David and who, 
through the spirit of holiness, was appointed to be the Son of God with power. Now, if you're reading that in your Bibles, you'll notice that I'm taking uh, the, the variant uh, reading in the footnote, uh, because there's two ways of looking at this. Uh, there's, there's actually two bits in this section where uh, we need to think a little bit because there's debate about the meaning. And we've got a choice here as to how we understand this. Either Paul is speaking about the two natures of Christ. He's speaking about Jesus' human nature, uh, who as to his human nature was the son of David. In other words, he was placed into the line of David and who uh, was also divine and that his divinity was declared by the resurrection. Alternatively, uh, the other way of looking at it is that it's speaking about two phases in Christ's existence. His coming in humiliation and then his new phase following the resurrection when he's the son of God with power. Now, uh, I, I'm compelled by the second of these uh, alternatives. I think that this is speaking about uh, Jesus' uh, messianic uh, ministry, that he came first in humiliation, but at the resurrection uh, there is a new phase when he comes uh, bringing power to all who are bound up with him in his resurrection. Why do I think that? Well, first of all, uh, in the New Testament, the resurrection is never anywhere else seen as an evidence to prove to people that Jesus is divine. Uh, it's seen as an evidence that the Father accepts what the Son has done. In other words, it's a vindication for the Son. It's also seen in a collective way that the resurrection is Jesus and his people. It's the resurrection of the Messiah, the anointed one, who's anointed for his people. He's the firstborn among many brothers. He rises representative of all who share in the resurrection. And so I think it's better to see this as Jesus now moving into this new phase of his existence. He is uh, appointed uh, to be the Son of God with power. No longer the Son in weakness, now the Son in power. And so we've got 1 Corinthians 15, 40, 45. The first Adam became a, life, a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. So the good news centers on Jesus and the resurrection. This is the, the message of the apostles. Jesus, who dies in shame and who is now alive in power to grant forgiveness and renewal in resurrection power to all who receive him. Any message that's not focused upon Jesus is no gospel. And any message about a Jesus who doesn't transform lives is not a message about the Jesus we have in the New Testament. It's a message about Jesus raised from the dead with transforming power. This is our gospel. Gospel is not about persuading people to become more or less conservative in their thinking. It's not about persuading people to become more moral in their living. It's not about having people uh, with more correct views about the origins of the universe. The gospel is about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. It's about meeting Jesus whose humiliation wins our salvation, whose resurrection power means our transformation. 
And fifthly, this message, this good news concerning uh, the Son of God results in a call to obedience. We receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Here's the other bit where you have to do a bit of thinking because there's a bit of debate about what the expression obedience of faith means. That's what it is, uh, obedience of faith. What does it mean? This time there are three options. It can mean obedience to the faith. Uh, and that's sometimes faith is used in the sense of being uh, the doctrine that we believe as Christians. The faith. Obedience to the faith. The problem with that is that there's no definite article here, which there is when faith is used like that. So that's unlikely. Uh, the second possibility that people look to is that it is obedience consistent, consisting of faith. So uh, when we respond in faith, it's an act of obedience, obedience which consists in faith. Now, the merit of that is that it makes clear that we are summoned to believe, uh, not to believe as an act of disobedience. Okay, so, so that's good. I mean, that's, that's true to the, 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 the general drift of the gospel. But the problem with that second one is that uh, faith and obedience are different. I mean, that one is not the same as the other. And so I'm compelled by the third one, which is what the NIV goes for here, which is that it's the obedience of faith in the sense that obedience flows from faith. In other words, we trust Christ with our obedience in view. We're committing to Christ as our Saviour and Lord. And that helps us contradict our, a wrong view that's quite prevalent in the States, that you can accept Jesus as your saviour and then at a later stage uh, accept him as your Lord. Now it seems absolutely crazy that anyone could come up with that but uh, the thinking is that it's preserving uh, salvation by faith alone. If you, if you tell people they have to uh, obey at the outset then you're making that a works. But the gospel can see no faith other than the faith which will spring up in active obedience to the will of God. So the obedience that flows from faith. Faith that's genuine is what the gospel summons. Belief in Jesus, the Son of God with power, isn't an escape route for people who don't want to obey the commandments. It's not an escape route for people who want not to be under moral authority. We come to the Lord Jesus and we lay ourselves at his feet and we too are bond servants. It's a transforming message and it gave purpose to the folks at Rome. Paul says three things about them. He says that they're called to belong to Jesus Christ they're loved by God and they're called to be saints. They had experienced the transforming power of a new identity. Now, I have seen films, I'm sure you have, which portray, uh, well, they have this, the promise to, to baddies who turn sides. Uh, it's called a witness protection program. And the informant 
person who's, who's grasped on, on, on the other baddies is given a new name, new ID papers, a passport, a new home, a job miles away uh, from the people who might plot revenge. I've often thought what that kind of life would feel like. What must it be to always wonder if your past is going to catch up with you? Always to be looking over your shoulder. Never certain if this program is going to unravel. It's a million miles away from the new identity that the gospel provides. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. A wonderful assurance. Through the gospel we are united to Jesus. Through the gospel we become his property. He guarantees our safety, our future. He provides for our needs. And one day he will declare us his brothers and his sisters before the Father. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Loved by God. Loved by God. Once we were enemies... We were under God's wrath and we were at enmity, we were enmity in our minds towards God. Now, loved by God. Imagine what that meant for those Roman Christians who are hearing this for the first time. Paul's telling them, you're loved by God. They knew what it was to be hated by people around them. Hated, despised, viewed with suspicion. They were misunderstood, hated even by uh, family members. Early on, uh, the, the, the church was misrepresented by people who were uh, not familiar with what things like the Lord's Supper meant. And so they were accused of cannibalism because of the language of of the, the body and blood that goes with the sacrament of the supper. They were accused of atheism because they declared they did not believe in the reality of gods that the, that the other pagans worshipped. They were seen as a threat. They were seen as a movement that needed to be suppressed. They were not loved by those around them. Paul saying, you are loved by God. Called to belong to Jesus Christ, loved by God, called to be saints, called to be saints, not in the stained glass sense of the word, not the sense of somebody who's uh, supposedly done miracles and has been given a high position, but in the sense that they are set apart for God's glory. Their new purpose in life is to reflect the beauties of the one who saved them which is simply another way of speaking of the obedience of faith. Jesus makes lives different. Called to belong to Jesus Christ, loved by God, called to be saints. True of the Roman Christians, true of you, and true of me. Our catechism, uh, when it places at the, the very beginning uh, the, the question of 
purpose and significance, when it asks the question, what, what's our chief end? What's our primary purpose? It recognises that this is so important for us. And the answer it gives, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's what Paul is declaring here. That we're called to be set apart for Christ. To give him glory as his bond slaves. Committed utterly to his service. To radiating his beauties to the world around us. But also called to the immense privilege of enjoying him. Of knowing he loves us. Knowing that he has brought us into himself, into the, the unfold of his family. That he's keeping us, preserving us. What dignity the gospel brings. And we're called to respond to this gospel. Because it's an authoritative message. It is not one option among many. We are not offered Jesus as one superhero among many others. It's much more radical than that. It's an exclusive truth claim. It demands a response that is absolutely committed. It's a gospel that changes the whole of life. The world tells us that there's no such thing as absolute truth and to be, to be wary of people who speak of absolute truth. And that is a delusion. And it leads to hell itself. The gospel of God Tremendous expression. The gospel of God comes with electrifying power into the confusion of our day. It calls each one of us to believe in Jesus and transformed by his power, live by his every word. Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel. We thank you for this wonderful letter uh, that we are studying Lord, bless it to our souls, we pray. And as Paul had such absolute conviction of its truth, Lord, may we too go into a world which is confused as to the truth and be clear of where we stand, who we fall, unashamed of the gospel of God. We ask this in Jesus' name.